Well, just want to say welcome to anyone who may be visiting with us or our first-time guest today. Uh, if you are new, my name's Don. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace, and we're glad you decided to join us either online or in person for our service today. If you are new, uh, just to give you a little context of what's going on, we have been in a series in James for really a few couple of months now, two or three months now, and we are coming close to the end. We have a couple more weeks after the day, and we will, we will finish the book of James. And so we have made our way to the final chapter, chapter 5, and our text for today is verses 7 through 12. And we'll put those verses up on the screen as well as any other verses we use if you want to reference them that way. Or you can use your Bible app or whatever you would choose. And the title for the message today is Living Like There's No Tomorrow. Well, the following ad appeared as a yard sale ad on a local community webpage. For sale... 200 canned hams, 100 pounds dried beans, 2,000 gallons fresh water including underground tank, 5,000 watt propane generator, 800 assorted canned vegetables, 8 cases sterno, 24 per case, 18 boxes matches, 2,000 rounds of 45 caliber bullets, 10 cases 12 gauge shotgun shells, 50 D-cell batteries, 75 AA's, 47 AAA's, one solar-powered radio, four cases powdered protein, one milk cow, one bull, seven laying hens, one rooster, 40 by 60 underground shelter with separate livestock quarters, one wood-burning stove with eight cords of wood, 43 assorted magazines, 12 flashlights, eight kerosene lamps and 16 military blankets and many other miscellaneous survival items. All items sold together or separately. Serious offers only. Well, if you're 30 years old or more as you listen to the items that were listed for sale, you might, you might begin to suspect what this yard sale ad was connected with. It might help you more if I told you it was posted in the early months of the year 2000. See, this was just one of the thousands of people who spent a great deal of time, effort, and money preparing for the expected disaster of Y2K. And if you're too young and you don't know anything about Y2K or you've forgotten, Y2K was this disaster that was supposed to affect the entire world when the calendar turned over from 1999 to 2000. And the reason was is because all the computers in the world encode the date in two digits. So 1999 is just 99. And the concern was that when the computers turned over from 99 to 00, they wouldn't know how to handle that and everything would break down, the power grids would go down, everything that depended on computers and electronics would stop working. I mean, maybe a, an easy way to get a sense of the concern is this tabloid headline that was from that day. I mean, everything was thought that we were going to enter into a post-apocalyptic chaos time because of Y2K. 
And it might sound silly now, but in that time, let me tell you, there was so much hype and media attention around that that it was hard not to be concerned about what was going to happen. And even I remember our family, we stockpiled food and water and survival supplies. I mean, we didn't do any guns, but, uh, but we were prepared that if the Mad Max apocalyptic time came, we would be able to make it through at least a few months. And so for weeks and, and literally months, Y2K captivated the attention of so many people. And many people just lived out their lives, their days, thinking about and preparing for the coming disaster that was to change our world. The disaster that fortunately never materialized. January 1st, 2000 came, and it was literally just like any other day. Y2K wasn't even a blip on the radar. And in James 5, 7 through 12, James wants us to be aware of another significant event that is coming. One that will have a far greater impact on our lives and our world than Y2K ever could have. See, unlike the Y2K disaster, this event is certain to take place. And unlike Y2K, which was to occur on a specific date, January 1, 2000, this event has no specific date. James tells us this event could take place literally at any moment. It might be a thousand years away, or it might take place tomorrow. And the event that James is speaking about is the second coming of Jesus Christ. And James wants his readers to be aware, and God wants us to be aware, that Jesus' second coming, it could occur at any moment. And we are to live today aware of and prepared for that reality. You see, that day is to make a difference in how we live this day. And I think that's really the big idea that James wants to get across in this text today. It's how we live today is to be shaped by knowing that Christ may return tomorrow. How we live today is to be shaped by knowing that Christ may return tomorrow. And so before we look at what James has to say, let's take a moment and pray. Lord, as we come today to talk about the promise of your coming, Lord, we need your spirit to give us eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord. We, it's so easy to go about our daily lives and just think about the day-to-day -day things that we're wrapped up and involved in and not think much at all about the fact that you could come at any moment. And so, Lord, sharpen our minds and, Lord, uh, strengthen our hearts, Lord, that we might be a people that are ready for your return. So fill me, Lord, this morning with your spirit that I might speak your word faithfully and accurately. And Lord, bless each one here with the presence and power of your spirit that we might benefit from what you have to say to us today through this passage. And we do ask this, Lord, for your glory and for the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's read James 7 through 12 together to get a sense of what James is telling us here. 
He says, beginning in verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. And in this text, I think James gives us three ways that knowing that Christ may return tomorrow is to shape how we live today. And the first one we want to look at is that knowing that Christ may return tomorrow means patiently persevering in doing good while suffering while enduring suffering and injustice. Let's look again at verses 7 and 8. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. James says we are to wait patiently and look for the coming of the Lord. And I don't know, have you ever really taken some time and thought about what the coming of the Lord will be like? I mean, the Bible gives us a brief glimpse into what Christ's return will be like. And it will be an event unlike anything you could ever imagine. It'll be visible. It'll command the attention of every living human being. Every eye will behold him. And there will be no doubt as to what is taking place in that moment. People won't be confused. They won't misunderstand. They will know what's going on. And he will send his angels to gather his people from all corners of the earth. And every human being will stand before him in judgment. Well, they will give an account of their lives to him, their creator. And the mere power of his presence will cause the heavens to dissolve and the, the earth that has been corrupted by sin to be cleansed and remade in the blazing fire of his holiness. I mean, nothing can fully prepare you for what will take place when Jesus Christ returns to this earth. And James tells us in this passage that Christ's coming could occur at any moment. If we look a few verses earlier in the text from last week in James 5.3, when James is speaking against the rich who are oppressing the poor and the powerless believers uh, that he's writing to, says this in chapter 5, verse 3, says, your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. It's the last 
days. The time is close. The days are coming to an end. In verse 8, he says the coming of the Lord is at hand. It's near. It's close. Verse 9, he says the judge is standing at the door. He's about to come in at any moment. Now perhaps you're thinking, wait a minute now. It's been 2,000 years since this was written. How can he be at the door or his coming be at hand 2,000 years ago and it still hasn't happened? I mean, were the biblical writers just wrong about this? Well, Peter actually speaks to this in 2 Peter 3, verse 4. He says, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Peter says, people are going to say, what's up with this promise of his coming being, being at hand, that he's coming at any moment? He said, everything's just kind of been going on for all this time, just like it was from the beginning. But you see, God doesn't see time the same way we do. Peter actually goes on to address that and speak to that a few verses later in 2 Peter 3.8. He says this, he says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. You see, we only see time one day at a time. When God sees time, he sees a thousand years and one day exactly the same. He sees all time. And in his seeing all time, God has designed it so that from our point of view, the return of Christ is possible at any moment from the time of James' day to now and into the future. You see, this is really the function of the signs the Bible talks about, the signs of Jesus' coming. You know, the Bible says there there are these signs that we should be alert to. There will be natural disasters and famines and wars and persecution and the rise of evil. And it says these are signs of Jesus coming. But the way the signs are supposed to work is they're not to give us the ability to pinpoint a specific time or day. That's not the way they work. They're to remind us as we see these signs that this could happen any day. That it could be tomorrow. It could be the next day. I mean, how many times throughout history have people thought they saw the signs and knew that the coming of Jesus was about to take place? And they've always been wrong. Because the signs are to be a constant reminder to us that it could be today. It could be tomorrow. And James says we're to wait patiently for the return of the Lord, knowing that it could occur at any moment. And as we wait, we are to patiently persevere in doing good, even in the suffering and injustice we encounter in life. See, if we step back for a second and look at the context of verses 7 through 12, they are connected to the text we looked at last week in verses 1 through 6, uh, where Nish gave us a great message on how the rich were oppressing the the poor and the powerless and taking advantage of them and treating them unjustly and unfairly. 
And as Nish mentioned, there's some debate as to whether the rich in those verses in 1 through 6 are talking about just the rich in the world who are oppressing the poor believers or, or whether it's the rich people who are part of the church. We really don't know for sure. But whichever it is, the reality is that many, most of the people James is writing to, they're included in the poor and the oppressed. And so as James writes to them in the midst of their struggling and this injustice and being treated wrongly and unfairly by the world around them, he says that you're to be patient and persevere in doing good in those times. He connects our verses with those verses. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, because of what he said before about being oppressed and being treated unfairly. We're to be patient and wait for the Lord's coming. We're to persevere in doing good, even in the midst of suffering and injustice, as we look to the day when Christ returns. Because we know that in that day, Jesus will make sure that every wrong deed will receive perfect justice, including those that have been done to us. See, God will take responsibility to make sure justice is met in all things when that day comes. So James tells them, be patient until the coming of the Lord. Don't envy the rich and those who pursue riches and possessions without keeping God at the center of their lives. Don't be like them. Riches will not profit when that day comes. If we get focused on the pursuit of wealth and possessions, we tend to forget that today could be the last day. And we're to wait patiently for that day. And he illust- James illustrates this by using the picture of a farmer, which would have been a, a very understandable analogy in that agricultural culture that they lived in. He says the farmer, he he goes about being responsible to do the things he needs to do. He works his ground, he plants and sows his seed, and then he has to wait. He has to wait patiently for the rains to come, the early rains, the late rains, and he's looking towards the harvest, and he has to wait patiently because he doesn't control when the harvest is going to take place. But he continues to do the things that he has to do to be responsible as he waits for that day to come. And we too are to patiently wait, persevering and doing good, even when we're treated wrongly. Now, let me just say, this doesn't mean that we can't graciously appeal when there's injustice, that we can't go and appeal for righteousness and justice to be done, but we're not to sinfully resist when treated wrongly. We're not to take our own revenge or seek to get back at those who have hurt us. We're to patiently persevere in doing good even in the midst of suffering and injustice. I think the Apostle Paul says it this way in Romans 12, 17 through 21. He says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, James tells us to strengthen our hearts, to patiently persevere in doing good as we look and wait for the day when the Lord comes, knowing that we will at times experience injustice and pain in this life, looking for that day when all things will be made right, not taking our own vengeance or justice on those who have hurt us or offended us or treated us wrongly, and maybe you, as you sit here, you'd say, well, you know, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't take revenge on someone who's hurt me or someone who's treated me unfairly. I wouldn't repay evil for evil. But before we brush too quickly over that, let me just say this. You know, one of the ways that we deal out justice to people and repay for wrongs and injustices that have been done to us is by holding on to resentments and unforgiveness and bitterness towards those people. Because you know, if we're honest, when we hold on to resentment and unforgiveness towards someone, it is mostly our way of dealing out justice to them for the wrong that we feel they've done to us. I mean, that's really what we're doing. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, as we've talked about the need, their need to forgive, is, I don't want to forgive that person because they don't deserve to be forgiven. And that's just our attempting to repay them for the wrong they've done to us, to give them what we feel they deserve. And you know, not only does God say, don't do that. I'm the one who will repay, not you. But if we really think about it, it, it doesn't even make sense. It's really pretty irrational. I mean, think about it. If we, when we hold on to resentments and unforgiveness towards someone, we're all bound up inside, you know, with those feelings of resentment and how, we're, how it dominates our thoughts and feelings at times towards that person. But you know, the reality is, in most cases, that other person, they're going about their merry life and they don't even don't know or don't even care that much about what we're going through and how it's affecting us. So who is it that's actually bearing the consequences of that bitterness and resentment? It's you. You're the one whose life is all affected by that. It doesn't make sense, does it? We're, we're, we're thinking we're repaying them for some wrong. We're getting, you know, giving them what they deserve for some wrong they did to us, but we're really the ones who are suffering as a result. I mean, there's, there's a quote that I heard years ago that always stuck with me about this. It said, unforgiveness and bitterness is like drinking poison hoping the other person's going to die. just doesn't make sense. God says, don't do that. And we're to leave the job of dealing out justice in Jesus' hands. It's not our responsibility. We weren't designed to do that. We weren't created for that. That's God's job. Only he can do that righteously and justly. 
And that's not how we live prepared for that day. And we must always keep in mind that today could be the last day. And how we live today is to be shaped by knowing that Christ may return tomorrow. And so then in verses 10 and 11, James gives two examples of those who patiently persevered in doing what was good and right, even in the midst of suffering and being treated unjustly. And he cites the examples of the prophets and Job. Let's look at verses 10 and 11 again. He says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. You know, Job's story should give us hope in our struggles. I mean, because if anybody was treated unjustly and unfairly, Job would be a, a good candidate for that list. I mean, Satan literally ravaged his life, and he was, even the Bible says he was a righteous man. He tried to live his life in as godly a way as he knew how, and Satan ravaged his life. He lost all his children. He lost all his wealth and possessions. He suffered physically, immeasurably, with a skin disease that caused boils to be on his skin that were extremely painful. And if we were to look at his story, he, he was far from perfect in his patience and his responses. I mean, he complained to God and wished he had never been born. He insisted before God that he didn't deserve the suffering he experienced. But yet he never abandoned or wavered in his faith and trust in God, even throughout this difficult season and experience. He persevered in faith in his wrestling and struggle with what was happening in his life, even when he didn't understand why. And God's grace brought him through so that all of God's purposes were accomplished through that time of difficulty. And so it is with us. God's grace will bring us through all the suffering and injustice we may experience in this life. Because God is compassionate and merciful. And he is using our suffering and trials to shape us for good, just as he did Job. And we will one day be blessed. God will reward us. You know, Job's story assures us of that. Because God blessed Job incredibly in the end. At the end of the story, Job gets a whole new family that he has great joy in. God gives him twice as much wealth and possessions that he had before. God just blessed him incredibly. And you know, Job was rewarded in this life. He got some of that blessing in, in this life on this earth. And sometimes it happens that way because God is a merciful and compassionate God who loves to bless his people. But not always. The prophets, in most cases, did not experience that blessing in this life. Their reward will come when that day comes, when Christ returns. Jesus says it in Matthew 5, 11 and 12. He says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. 
Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In most cases, the prophets didn't experience that blessing in this life. But they will experience it beyond belief in the next. And you see, the only way that we will patiently persevere in doing good in times of injustice or when others sin against us or treat us unfairly today is if we have our eyes fixed on that day when Christ returns. Remembering that for all we know, that day could be tomorrow. And how we live today is to be shaped by knowing that Christ may return tomorrow. That brings us to the second point we want to draw from this passage, and that is that knowing that Christ may return tomorrow means patiently bearing with the faults and weaknesses of one another. Let's look at verse 9. James says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And in this verse, James says, do not grumble against one another. And the one another here implies that he's primarily referring to those who are part of the community of believers. And I don't know about you, but I tend to grumble and complain towards others the most when I'm under pressure or in a difficult situation. I don't know if you can relate to that. But when things aren't going well in life, we tend to grumble and complain about other people. I mean, it's also true that we tend to take out our irritations and our frustrations with our problems in life on those who are closest to us. I mean, it's like the old story, we have a bad day at work and we come home and we kick the dog. Maybe you don't kick the dog, but maybe you come home and you yell at the kids or you get angry at your spouse for some trivial or insignificant thing. And if we're in the midst of a trial or experiencing some injustice in life, we can tend to be less patient and less tolerant of the weaknesses and faults of those around us, particularly when they sin against us or don't meet what we want or expect from them. I mean, we can think, you know, I got enough going on in life right now without the people in my family or my church adding to my problems. And we can easily fall into feeling sorry for ourselves and grumbling and complaining. You see, we grumble and complain against others because life isn't going the way we would like it to. But James wants to remind us that today could be the last day And when Jesus comes, he will judge those kinds of sinful responses in our lives. And this is not speaking about a judgment that will condemn us to hell. But those deeds and the sinful motives behind them will be exposed and judged for what they really are on that day. And there will be no reward for those responses. No well done for grumbling and complaining against one another. Even if we are going through a time of suffering or trial. You see, believers too will stand before the judge of all things on that day. And we must remember that those we are grumbling and complaining against, 
they belong to the king. He has shed his blood to purchase them for himself. They are his chosen, treasured possession. Those sitting around you in this room are God's chosen, treasured possession. And when he returns all of their faults and weaknesses, they'll be done away with. And we will all dwell together in sinless harmony and perfect unity in that day. You see, really, if we think about it, grumbling and complaining against one another when we do that, it's really another fruit or evidence of our wanting to treat people like we think they deserve. But here's the thing. See, God didn't treat us that way. God didn't treat us. He didn't give us what we deserve. I mean, just, just take a moment and think. Where would you be? Where would I be if God treated us like we deserved? I mean, think about it. I don't care what kind of life you've lived, good or bad, you know. I don't care when you got saved, young or old. The Bible says that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and we have violated His word, his law, his authority, his righteousness in countless ways in our thoughts, in our words, our deeds. And if God gave us what we deserved, there wouldn't be one of us that would escape eternal judgment. But God didn't do that, did he? Instead, he treated us with mercy and compassion when we should have been executed for our countless crimes against His holiness, instead, He sent His Son to come to this earth, the most precious, valuable thing that He had, and He sent Him to come and to die in our place, to come and to suffer and to literally bear that eternal judgment that we deserved. He took that upon himself as he hung on that cross and bore it in our place. So that if we will put our faith and trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior and look to him and turn from our sin and make him our Savior, and God will forgive us all of our sins. All, past, present, future, everyone washed clean. And he will give us the very righteousness of Jesus' perfect life. Bring us into his family where we can share in the infinite joy and delight that he shares with the members of the Trinity and his kingdom as part of his family for all eternity. See, God didn't treat us like we deserve. And if by chance you're here, you're listening, and, and you've never seen why you need a Savior, you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Savior, you see, here's the thing. When that day comes, when Jesus returns, we will all stand before him and give an account of our life, and every thought, word, and deed will be brought into the light in that moment. And there will really only be two options in that moment. 
Either you will stand before God accountable to him yourself for every one of those wrong thoughts, words, and deeds. Or when that moment comes, you'll say, I'm with him and point to Jesus. He paid for me. It's his righteousness I stand in. Those are the only two choices there's going to be on that day. And so if you've never thought you need a Savior, I, I would, I, believe me, you, trust me when I say you don't want to stand before God on that day accountable yourself for your own sins. That will not go well. But for those of us who have experienced such amazing grace from God in our lives, we are to treat one another with the same love and grace that God has extended to us until that day comes. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then a little later in that chapter, in chapter 4, verses 29 through 32, he says this. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. For that day, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, Forgiving one another, how has God in Christ forgave you? You see, we are to treat one another in this day with the grace and kindness that God has extended to us as we wait for that day. And we're not to grumble and complain against one another. We are to patiently bear with one another's faults and weaknesses until that day comes. And we must never forget that tomorrow could be that day. And then the third thing James tells us in this passage is that knowing that Christ may return tomorrow means pursuing honesty and integrity in all we say and do. Let's look at verse 12. He says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall into condemnation. So why does James bring up this issue about swearing and making oaths here in this text? And you know, there's a number of different opinions about how this verse fits into this letter, why it's here. <clears throat> and while it might be debatable, personally I think it is connected to how we should live as we wait for the Lord's return. To me, the clue is at the end of that verse, at the end of verse 12, he says, so that you may not fall into condemnation. See, he still seems to be speaking to the judgment we will experience on that day when we stand before Jesus when he returns. So what is this 
instruction regarding swearing and oaths all about? And first of all, he's not speaking about swearing as in cursing or taking the Lord's name in vain or using foul language. That's not what he's talking about here. But he's speaking about swearing and oaths. And what it has to do with is it's this idea of guaranteeing truthfulness in certain things. Now, he's not talking about, say, like when you have to go to court and you, they call you up to be a witness and they say, would you swear to tell the whole truth? He's not saying don't do that. That's okay. But he is talking about how we would tend to use swearing and oaths in kind of our everyday conversation. Maybe it's more like when people say things like, you know, I swear on my mother's grave or I'd swear on a stack of Bibles and uh, something like that. And then, so here's the issue was swearing and oaths in that time. You see, in the Old Testament, the making of an oath or a vow typically involved a promise where someone invoked God's name as the assurance of keeping that promise. And that made you specifically accountable to God for the truthfulness or fulfillment of that oath or vow. And to not keep your word was to treat God as not important enough for you to honor what you promised. And that brought condemnation and judgment from God on that person. You see, oaths and vows were serious, sober things that one did not do lightly in that context. And as things evolved in James' time, the practice of using oaths had degraded into something it was never intended to be in the Old Testament law. Oaths had become a common practice in daily speech as a way to vouch for the truthfulness of what someone was saying. But here's the problem. You see, the issue of an oath to ensure truthfulness or integrity in what we say It implies that other things we say may not be as truthful. It creates the idea that things you said without an oath didn't have to be as truthful or honest or meet the same standard. And both Jesus and James denounced that idea as evil. And James probably draws to some degree in this verse from Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 34 through 37, where Jesus says, But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. See, James says, let your... Yes be yes, and your no be no, whenever you speak. The honesty and integrity of every word we speak is important to God. <clears throat> Jesus says it in Matthew 12, 36-37. He says this, I tell you, on the day of judgment, that day, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. See, if we are reliably honest and truthful whenever we speak, what need is there for an oath to prove our truthfulness? 
If I need to swear or take an oath, I'm acknowledging that my word might not be reliable otherwise. And God cares about the truthfulness and integrity of everything we say and do. And He will judge all falsehood and dishonesty on that day when He returns. So how does this apply to us? I think the question for us is how much is your yes, yes, and your no, no? How are you when it comes to keeping your word and doing what you say you will do? Is doing what you say you will do when you say you will do it, is that a value that is important in how you live? Would your spouse, your kids, your roommate, your friends, your co-workers, would they see you that way? And I remember when, how God impressed upon me the importance of the words that I spoke. Uh, some of you have heard kind of my testimony. I was a very evil person before I got saved. And one of the manifestations of that is I was a, an accomplished liar. I mean, the truth literally meant nothing to me. I would lie if it was convenient. I would lie if it in any way benefited my self-interest. I didn't care about the truth. I only had one value, and that was whatever was best for me. And my words, as long as they served that purpose, I didn't care whether they were right or wrong. And then God supernaturally intervened in my life, led me to the Lord, and I got saved. And, you know, I continued to lie for a while. And then something very strange began to happen. When I would tell a lie, all of a sudden it began to just literally feel nasty coming out of my mouth. I mean, it was like something inside had changed. And all of a sudden before where the truth meant nothing, something inside, it it mattered now for some reason. Whenever I would lie or say something that wasn't true, it just felt bad. And it got to the point, and for a while, I just continued to try to do it, but it kept getting worse and worse. And finally, it got to the point where I said, I don't want to do this anymore. And I kind of made a commitment to the Lord. Lord, from now on, I want to do my best to try to live out my life in such a way that I speak truthfully and honestly in what I say. You see, the honesty and truthfulness of our words, it matters to God. And if we're to live today to be prepared for that day, we must pursue honesty and integrity in all we say and do. Because that day is coming. And James wants us to realize that that day could be tomorrow. And how we live today is to be shaped by knowing that Christ may return tomorrow. If I could have the worship team come and join me. So as we close, there's really only one question that I want to leave you with this morning. If it should happen that Christ comes tomorrow, are you prepared? As you look back over the last week, the last month, the last year, if you knew it was tomorrow, what would you have done differently? What would you be doing differently today? 
Are you patiently persevering and doing good even when there may be suffering or injustice? Are you extending the same grace to others that God has extended to you? Are you patiently bearing with one another's faults and weaknesses? Are you pursuing truthfulness and honesty in all you say and do? Are you keeping God at the center of your life as you wait for that day to come? You know, unlike the old Y2K scare, we don't prepare for that day by hoarding supplies and provisions. That won't help us when that day comes. We prepare for that day by how we live today. And that day is coming in all of its power and awesome glory. And James wants us to be ready. Jesus wants us to be ready. Because for all we know, that day could be tomorrow. Let's stand together and sing this song as we look to that day.